Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. This is episode 275. Hard to believe we've done 275 of these, but here we are. So uh, today I want to talk a little bit about the court case involving uh, Paige Patterson, the former uh, seminary president and conservative leader in the Southern Baptist Convention. About four or five years ago, there there was a, a full court press in the Southern Baptist Convention that was designed to, well, the ostensible reason was to uh, deal with sexual abuse and sexual abuse cases that had been mishandled and so forth uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is obviously a noble goal. You want to, if there are wrongs, you want to put them right. And if there are abuses, you want to fix them and correct them and, and so forth. But what this actually was, was a, uh, a political move designed to move the Southern Baptist Convention left on things like women's ordination and um, feminism and other related is issues. And one of the ways to put conservatives back on their heels is to um, allege wrongdoing, malfeasance, you know, of various kinds, right? And an accusation was made against uh, Paige Patterson. There had been a, a sexual uh, encounter of a, a illicit kind. It was alleged to be rape. Etc. And the charge was was that Paige Patterson had mishandled the whole thing, and as a result of the public uproar, Patterson was fired as the seminary uh, professor. He was traveling. He was locked out of his office, etc. Well, just as within the last week or so, the court case that was brought in light of all this was settled, and the court case determined that all the all the public allegations, which were the reason for Patterson's firing, uh, were bogus. So he didn't do anything. He didn't do what was alleged and, and so on. Uh, he followed the book, did what he ought to have done, and so on, and was nevertheless fired because of public controversy. Now, having said all this, I know that in Every situation like this, there are a lot of players and a lot of perspectives and a lot of background story and yeah, but that, and this is precisely why these sorts of things ought not to be adjudicated on the internet. The internet is not the place to go uh, to find judicious, uh, seasoned, well-tempered jurors. That's not that's not where they hang out. But and the fact that you you can see that this was a political move, because the people who ran Patterson out felt virtuous at the time, and they feel virtuous now. Uh, none of none of his accusers are coming forward and saying now that the court has evaluated all the evidence and sifted through everything, it's very clear that we were hasty in our accusations and we would like to uh, seek Patterson's forgiveness or we would like to uh, apologize. That's not happening. And the reason it's not happening is because the cause is paramount. This was not about dealing with individual abuse cases. This was about using those abuse cases as a truncheon or a cudgel 
to uh, put conservatives on the defense in a defensive mode. Now, this is not to say that uh, every liberal is a skunk, and it's not to say that conservatives can't do bad things. (laughs) What it means is that we need to understand that we are involved in a cultural battle, a cultural war, and I would argue a cultural revolution. And in this revolution, it's not a fair fight. People are not taking care to not fight dirty. Uh, this is, they're playing hardball. And, and so consequently, when a hue and a cry goes up and someone says, the Reverend so-and-so didn't report this uh, sexual crime that he knew about, you know, or he, didn't, he didn't handle the abuse case rightly. Uh, when, that, when that allegation is made against him, It says in 1 Timothy uh, 5 that you're not to entertain a charge against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses. The requirement of two and three witnesses uh, is is where we, well, it's one of the contributors to the biblical framework of justice. In the biblical framework of justice, it is far, far better for a guilty man to go free than for an innocent man to be convicted. Let me say that again. It's far better for a guilty man to walk free than for an innocent man to be convicted. All the safeguards that you have uh, in Proverbs eighteen seventeen, you've got to hear from both sides before you uh, make your judgment. You've got to have independent corroboration of the charge, not just one person, but two or, th- or sometimes three uh, people have to say, no, I was there. I saw that. That's what happened. And when you're talking about biblical justice, think of it this way. The, the deck is stacked against the prosecution. That's how biblical justice works. The deck is stacked against the prosecution. Now, when you insist on following due process in this way, someone is going to accuse you of defending the crime itself. And, and that's, part of the, that's how you can see that this has turned into a, a political football. Let's say someone is accused of rape. And you say, okay, well, let's have a trial. Let's wait. Let's not hang him just yet. If we, if we hang the rapist right away, that's congratulations. You have attained to the high level of a lynch mob. This is what lynch mobs do. They don't need any further evidence. They don't need no stinking trial. They, don't need, they know that the man is guilty, and so they go after him. And if you say, ho, 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 let's not, let's not do this. Let's uh, have a trial first. Let's have an opportunity for cross-examination. Let's weigh and sift the evidence to, because he denies that he raped anybody. He denies that he's a rapist. Let's determine that he is, in fact, a rapist before we punish him for it. Uh, invariably, a person who insists on due process is going to be accused of defending rape. No, no, he's defending due process. Quite a different thing. So I'm grateful that this uh, decision was handed down with regard to Patterson, but conservatives need to st- take a few steps back, keep their eye on the ball. The issue is not this particular sex abuse case or that one. The issue is whether these things uh, can be effectively used by the progressive left. Always will be God. So continuing on with episode 275 of the podcast. We come now to our 
A study of hamartiology. Our venture into hamartiology today is going to bring us to the word epicaluma, epicaluma, which refers to a cloak, a cloak. Now, obviously, a cloak is not a sin problem if you're using it to keep off the rain, or at least that's how I would argue. But if you're using it to hide something else, that something else being sinful, then such a use of a cloak would be sinful. And that is what we find in Peter. So, in 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter 2.16, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants, but as the servants of God. So what uh, Peter is saying here is your liberty is a good thing, just like a cloak is a good thing for keeping off the rain, but don't use your liberty as a way of hiding the fact that you're a malicious person, as a cloak for maliciousness. So, the sin here is that of using Christian liberty as an excuse for sinning. True liberty, as wrought by the Spirit of God, is what liberates us from the bondage of sinning. It does not betray back into that bondage. It does not betray us back into that bondage. And if someone is using the mantle of forgiveness of sin as a covering that enables them to sin, then it is clear that they do not know what has happened at all. And part of the reason they do not know what has happened to them is probably found in the fact that it hasn't happened to them yet. In other words, if you use forgiveness of sin as a cloak for your malice, then the chances are pretty good that you don't have a cloak. (laughs) You just have a pretense. You have a pretense. So, some people object to the grace of forgiveness covering all sin as an objection. They say that free grace will enable people to sin. They say that it will give them an excuse for sinning. That's uh, Romans 6, 1 and 2, right? Why not sin that grace may abound? And, And so, they that they argue against the position of free grace because they argue that people are going to be attracted to this free grace business and they are going to sin up a storm. And then Paul uh, says something similar in Romans 3, and not rather as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. So Paul was accused of teaching that it was um, appropriate to do evil so that God could demonstrate his grace and his forgiveness by forgiving the evil that we had just done. Well, that's uh, obviously uh, a bad thing. And, And there are moralists outside the faith who object to the teaching of grace in the church because they say people will abuse it that way. These are people who think that this logic fits, but they're making this point from outside the faith. The people that Peter is speaking of are ostensibly believers, and they are arguing for some form of antinomianism from inside the faith. They're saying, yes, the the charge is right. We're under under grace, not under law. We can do anything we want. Uh, And that Peter talks about that being used as a cloak for sin. And the apostles were having none of it. All right, so my uh, my book review this time around in my podcast episode two seventy five. I keep reminding you, uh, the book review is not a book I wrote, but it's a book I have something to do with, and it's coming out this month from Canon Press. This is National Poetry Month, and the um, and Canon Press is releasing uh, three books of poetry. Uh, one of them, the book I'm going to talk about uh, here now is uh, Calvinist poetry. And uh, I wrote a forward to it and selected the poems, and I edited the poems uh, as much as I could for the modern reader. 
some things you can edit, uh, other things you can't. Uh, so, uh, for example, when a line ends with V, uh, you have to keep keep that for the sake of the rhyme. Uh, but if a thee or a thou was in the middle of the line, I changed it to you. I sandpapered as much as I could, in other words. Now, I know that certain poetic purists, the people who want to read George Herbert's poetry just the way he wrote it, the purists are are not going to like it because they're going to say, I've, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've tampered with the original here. But what I want, what I'm arguing for is in, in this book and trying to encourage is I'm trying to encourage people to think in terms of poetry as something that is, is and should be accessible to average people. We've made a series of bad choices and we've drifted into the position of thinking that poetry is for English lit grad students you know, egg, literary eggheads, and they're the ones who read poetry. And well, here's a problem. Uh, a century or two ago, a man, the man in the street could tell you who the National Poet Laureate was, and he quite possibly had a collection of his poems at his house. So when Tennyson was the Poet Laureate for England, he was a well-known, he was a household name. Everybody knew him. Uh, when my father was a young boy, he memorized reams of poetry. It was just part of it. Was, this was sort of part of the legacy or the heritage of every man. And now, today, the poet laureate is an unknown figure, uh, an obscure figure. Professional poets write in poetry journals with a subscription list of 17 or 18. Uh, po basically, poets write for other poets. It used to be that poets wrote for the people. Now, this means, and this is something I argue in the forward, that, and there's another thing I argue I'm going to get to in a minute, but I argue in the forward that uh, if you want great major league baseball, you are going to have to have minor leagues, and you're going to have to have regional traveling teams, and you're going to have to have little league. You can't sneer at little league and then wonder where all the great players went. Basically, in order to have great Major League Baseball, you have to have ho-hum small-town baseball. You, and in order to have great poets, you have to have ordinary poets, regular poets, common meter poets, uh, sturdy poets. And the thing that we have done by elevating poetry the way we have is we've, for all intents and purposes, wrecked it. Uh, so what I'm trying, what I want to do is pre present this volume of poetry, uh, English. By and large, it's almost all composed in English. I think there's one translation in there, and this is sort of the poetry ranges from poetry that I think is among the best uh, poems written in the English language uh, down to some pretty common pedestrian stuff. And this lines up with my little league up to the major leagues uh, argument. That's one thing. The, the second thing, the other reason I wrote this, and it's a volume of Calvinist poetry. Uh, one of the jabs or the accusations against Calvinists is that they are taunted uh, by unbelievers with the, uh, with the jab that Calvinism has no soul. It's like uh, Calvinists are supposed to be these logic machines. Uh, that don't have any artistic soul at all. 
and and some of this has to do with some of the iconoclastic battles in the Reformation, and and people think that when it comes to the arts and Calvinism, all they can think of is Oliver Cromwell's men heading down to the cathedral to knock off some saints' noses with a hammer, uh, and that's the Calvinist attitude toward the arts. But truth be told, Calvinists are uh, have been men and women of the word, and so consequently. Our dedication to aesthetics has been something that has largely been embodied in the word. Calvinism, Puritanism, and other variations of this have produced some of the best poetry, some of the greatest poets ever. And I include a number of these men in this volume. Calvinist poetry out this month. It is, um, there, there'll be some prizes, some surprises in there. Well, I, Coleridge is in there, for example. There will be there will be people that you you aren't aren't surprised. Herbert is in there, uh, Marvell, and then there's uh, Milton is included. There's debate about Milton. There's a little biographical intro uh, to each poet in this volume, and and a short analysis of the of the poem by my colleague Jason Greaser, uh, who um, helped me with this project, and I think that you will enjoy it very much. So, uh, Calvinist poetry, uh, selected and edited by Douglas Wilson with some comments uh, and introductions that I wrote, and then um, poetic analysis by Dr. Jason Greaser. Mm-hmm. 